Today's listener mailbag edition of Animal Spirits is sponsored by Navaplan by InvestCloud. Built on the most precise calculation engine in the financial planning market, Navaplan empowers advisors to cater their services to any client from simple goals-based assessments to advanced cash flow planning analysis. To see how Navaplan helps model some of the concepts and strategies discussed on today's episode, visit advicentsolutions.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. We did another purge of our inbox from listener questions. Thanks again to everyone who's writing in. And today we're going to go through some of those questions. Remember, it's animalspiritspod at gmail.com if you want to ask us a question. This one came in this past week when interest rates rose and stocks fell off. Here's a good question. Why do we talk about stocks in terms of price and bonds in terms of yield? For example, would it not be confusing to the average investor if the headline said, yields drop on Ford Motor Stock? How is the average investor supposed to interpret a news day like today with the big drops and higher treasury yields? What does it mean to the average investor when bond yields rise? Who decided that bond yields would rise? Well, the last part of the question is certainly the Fed. The Fed decides everything, right? No. There's a pretty simple and then there's a pretty complex answer here. The reason that we talk about bonds in terms of yield is, well, first of all, it's a hurdle rate more than anything. And so people care what that actual yield level is, but also it's more difficult to calculate the returns in bonds because you're dealing with maturity and duration in different levels of interest rates. And so it helps people understand better the yield. It's not as easy as saying the bond market fell 1% today when you look at the level of yields because so many different aspects of the bond market are impacted when rates rise. Imagine the headline was the 10-year went from 138.2 to 138.6. It's meaningless. You have to quote that in terms of yield. So what does it mean to the average investor when bond yields rise? It means bond prices are going to fall. It also means expected returns for bonds over the long term are going to go up, even though prices go down today. The person didn't ask this, but just for listeners that might be unsure why that inverse relationship holds is because when interest rates rise, people will sell their lower yielding bonds today, driving down price and buy new higher yielding bonds. So that's why there is a direct inverse relationship between yields and price. Well, if you think about it, if you have a bond that pays 2% and the market rate goes to 3%, your 2% bond is now worth much less than the 3% bond because you're getting a lower yield. That means your price has to adjust to make up for that. Exactly. Lower yield. Who decided that bond yields would rise? It's investors. Millions of different market participants who are thinking about things like interest rates and asset allocation and GDP growth and all this stuff going on. And so if bond yields rise, that means investors are selling bonds. By the way, we're really starting this one off with a banger of a question, huh? Hey, come on. I thought that was pretty good. All right. What's next? In Ben's article about the last 200 years of returns, it shows that commodities have had negative real returns over just about every meaningful time frame. Does this mean we should by no means have a basket of commodities in our portfolios? How did they measure this data? The broad-based commodities funds have really done this bad consistently. Seems shocking to me. I don't like this 200 years data. It's sort of similar to the Bessembinder paper, which we've quoted all the time. And I agree with like 85% of this premise. 
that only 4% of stocks drive all returns, meaning 96% of other stocks have life total lifetime returns of zero. Okay, that's true, but that also assumes that somebody bought the stock at the IPO and held it for the duration of, it, of the lifetime of the business. There are trading or investing opportunities between zero and the terminal value. This 200 years of data was from Deutsche Bank. Well, kind of. Hang on. I'm getting to it. This Jim Reed puts out this every year. It's called the Long-Term Asset Return Study. And they go back to like 1800. Obviously, you can't really trust that much. But I think that actually, if you're thinking very long-term in nature and you're thinking over multiple decades, I think this data actually kind of does hold because... Nobody's thinking in decades. What are you talking about? They're asking, should they be a long-term holding in a portfolio, like a core position? My answer is typically, I think commodities are more of a tactical trading strategy than a long-term buy and hold position because here's a few... So this is the last 200 years, but if we just go back to 1991, which is when the Bloomberg Commodity Index started, if you look at a chart of this thing, which I have in the doc here for you to look at, Michael, from 1991 to now, there was a period where it spiked big time. It's at the exact same level it was in 1991. Hasn't changed. Now, you could say, well, that's because futures and that's not the real prices of the commodities. And what about how you weight these commodities? That's true. Here's one from a new book I'm reading called The Davis Dynasty. This is after the Great Depression, so take that for what you will. By 1931, commodity prices hit lows that had well, Hold on. What's the Davis Dynasty? I'm going to talk about this on the next show. So just put a pin in it for now. I'm going to talk about this new book I'm reading, that, which is very good. By 1931, commodity prices hit lows that hadn't been seen since the 1870s. Now, this makes sense in a country where we have progress because progress means technology. Technology means you're finding ways to do things more efficiently. That should technically drive down the after-inflation price of commodities over time. My whole thing is, over the long term, you're betting on technology over input prices. I'm not in any way, shape, or form disagreeing with you. I agree. I guess the point that I was pushing back and maybe I'm being pedantic is that just because something has a 0% return over a 50-year period... I mean, yeah, listen, <laughs> that probably means you don't want to invest in it, but it could also be part of a permanent portfolio where you're rebalancing and you could have positive impact on a portfolio if you are doing it that way. There's also a difference between like some people will say, what about gold? And I think gold is a different animal than commodities even. So a lot of it depends on how you structure that commodities bet. And there's also the fact that pre-1991, when this Bloomberg index came about, it was basically it was impossible world. for it was a different world. It was impossible for individuals to even invest in commodities unless they like went down in the futures pit and traded orange juice futures with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Now, let me actually myself, even though the permanent portfolio has done very well over time, which is a mix of, I guess, a quarter commodities, bills, stocks, and bonds. Behaviorally, it's almost impossible to stick through. Yeah, I agree. I'm saying that something could impact the portfolio positively, even if the returns are lousy. But if you're in an asset class that's flat for 12 years, that does not have necessarily positive expected returns. That's a tough ask for the average person to live through. And I've seen work from William Bernstein who says, instead of owning the commodities, own precious metals and mining stocks, as opposed, we actually have a little bit of a higher expected return and that same volatility. All right. Do you keep a certain percentage of investable assets in cash ready to deploy, separate from your cash holdings for emergencies, et cetera? What percentage is it? How does that percentage change with various market scenarios? I'll take this. Is it better to just continually add to your investment dollars to risk assets in the long run, since in the long run, longer duration of market exposure tends to lead to better returns? Well, in the long run, we're all dead. I just thought of that. That just hit me. So You just came up with that on your own. Yep. No big deal. Attribute it to Michael Badnick. I used to have a much higher percentage of my assets in cash especially when Marcus was giving me that sweet, sweet 2%. And depending on your job, I think will dictate 
what level of cash you need. In other words, if you have a variable compensation, then certainly you want a higher level of cash. But if you are in a role where you feel very strong in your career, so I guess it's personal. You always want to save for a rainy day, of course, but is that three months? Is that 12 months? Is that one month? I guess that's a personal decision. For me personally, my cash has been going way, way, way down because of interest rates. That's just what it is. The Ben's Fed is forcing my hand. Yeah. So you're welcome for higher stock market prices. I don't put cash on the sidelines to like wait for a fat pitch. That's just not my mentality. I would rather just put it in. And I have certainly tried to do that in the past. And then I look back at it and I say, if I would have just put this money in when I had it, I would have been way better off in the end. And sometimes that's going to work out. Sometimes it's not. But if I know I have some big investment or outlay coming for something, then I'll either save for it or I try to have a high enough savings rate where I can use the savings from something else to put to work there. This is a question where it could be thought of one of two ways. Is this person talking about what do you do with cash if you get a $200,000 windfall? That's a different question than, okay, how much cash do I want to build up for reserves? The other thing is, what am I supposed to do about the stock market here? Valuations are high. I don't want to put it to work, so I'm going to sit on cash and wait. So those are all different. Yeah, you're right. Different ways to look at it. So I tend to think that cash cash waiting for the fat pitch can be poisonous, especially, listen, it's easy to say that in a bull market, but your brain starts getting infected. Ben, you wrote a post about this, I'm sure, about the trouble of sitting in cash and waiting for the pitch. And it's just hard. And then the idea that you're going to deploy in a bear market, you're going to swing at the fat pitch. You're probably fooling yourself on that end as well. So I just recommend what I do is I dial across the average in my 401k, in my taxable account, every two weeks, I'm buying. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm not going to hold a bunch of cash just because I'm trying to time the market. All right. I think it's been said the general rule for refinancing a mortgage is when it makes sense if the refi rate is 1% lower than my current interest rate. I got lucky when I bought in Q4 of 2016 when rates were low. I got 3.5% on a 30-year. So I've not attempted to refinance given 30-year refi rates have not yet touched 2.5%. I think they have for some people, but it's probably pretty tough. I have a fully funded emergency fund, mostly in money markets, with a Fed money printer going burr. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of that one. No shit. Doesn't no kidding. That's a it's shock. A, Maybe because you work there. It's because I'm a Fed apologist. I don't know. It's just, I don't think it's funny. I'm worried about inflation eating away my emergency fund's value. Would it potentially make sense for me to use a large chunk of my emergency fund, say five months of expenses, to do a mortgage recast and then also get a HELOC as an additional cushion? I understand recasts are cheaper than a refi, and this would ensure my emergency fund is not eaten by inflation. Can I just correct myself? I said that I don't usually sit on a lot of cash. As listeners know, I spent the last year trying to get money out of my house and I finally accomplished that. So I'm calling myself out for lying. I just lied. I'm sorry. I do have quite a bit of cash because I just took it out of my house and I am doing various things with that cash. But so right now, I guess at this very moment in time, I have a much larger cash position than I had in the past. But prior to me taking money out of my house, I was sitting on a very low cash position. Ben, does that make sense? Yeah, I think probably once a month on this podcast, you have an argument with yourself. Well, I just want to set the record straight. I'm trying to be transparent. Credit to me. <laughs> yeah, credit to you. Yeah, but I think it's funny that you'll take one side and then you'll take the other side of yourself. So I just get to sit here, which is fine. Listen, okay, consistency so, is boring. You got to keep people on their toes. Okay, so I didn't know what this mortgage recasting stuff was until I heard about it through a friend who did it, where it sounds like it's basically a way easier version of refinancing. And I don't know if they're not doing it anymore, but... It sounds like it's way easier to do, but the whole question here really, besides the recasting versus refinancing, they just want to take some of their money. So with a recast, you make this like large lump sum payment to the lender. It goes to your principal, it reduces the amount you owe, 
And then they recast that based on that new amount. This person is saying, what if I take five months of my emergency fund, make a lump sum payment, recast my mortgage at a lower rate with this new principal value? So this is instead of taking money out of a house like you, this is putting money back in to then ensure a lower rate because they're basically saying the money that they pay down on their mortgage, that two and a half, three, three and a half percent is going to be better spent than sitting in a money market fund that's not earning anything. So this is the opposite of what a lot of people are doing. Instead of taking money out, they're putting money in because you're essentially paying yourself a higher rate to pay down your mortgage. You know what would really keep people on their toes? What if I take the cash that I just took from my house and I put it back into my house? (laughs) (laughs) I changed my mind. (laughs) Thinking guy. Ooh, you look just for the audience because they can't see this. Ben just scratched his forehead. You just wrinkled. You're confused. Your head hurts. The mortgage ones, and this is true with most financial questions. There's no right or wrong answer. And there are people who have strong feelings one way or another. Unless you're recommending people don't invest into a 529, which we'll (laughs) get to later in the show with Tony. Yes. So a lot of it depends on how much. So they're saying they could take the HELOC out as an additional cushion. It depends how much you trust that, how willing you are to have some illiquidity in your life. Is the difference between a 3% mortgage paying down and earning 0.5% in your online account going to make that much of a difference in your life? Probably not. When I was talking to my mortgage broker... We were talking about how to get money out of the house, cash out, HELOC. And he said that HELOCs are more for like one-time home improvement type deals that you don't want to just like have a HELOC outstanding necessarily because it floats, the rate floats. And if the Fed starts to taper, maybe a little bit of liftoff, then you can be owing the bank more money than you originally thought. Here's why I decided to do a HELOC instead of a cash out refi. Oh, contrarian play. Let's hear it. I'm going against you. One of the reasons was a cash out refi meant a higher rate. I would have had to increase the mortgage rate a little bit. Now it's just a little. It's not that much. An eighth? Yeah, maybe a 16th. I didn't have something that I was spending my money on right away. I was using this as I'm going to use it to deploy if something comes up. And so I didn't want to have to be paying those payments if it, the cash was just going to sit in my savings account. And I decided I was going to use it when I was going to use well, it. Well, that's fair because one of the reasons why I was doing this is because we're having more opportunities to invest. And I just kind of want it there for when I need to tap it. So what you're doing makes total sense. See, this is a thing. It's a gray area where both ways can be right. Compromise. We came in the middle. It's kind of a tomato-tomato situation. We get to the same point. All right, let's do a career one here. All right, you career. read this one? Yeah, sure. Go to career one. You got it. I considered some of your guys' advice in taking a role at a bigger firm that I would pay for my licensing over a part-time RIA role. Currently in a college program at Fidelity, training to be in customer service. Over the summer, I got my SIE. I don't know what that is. Do you know what that is? Series 763, all before senior year. Kudos to you. Long-term, I definitely have RA aspirations and have having my own book of business. However, the amount of support resources Fidelity offers is world-class coming out of college. Yeah, this is why we recommended it. Credit to us. It's a great rec. I also am thinking of relocating from the Midwest to either Houston or Dallas as my girlfriend goes to school in Texas. Do you guys have any advice in terms of networking before relocating? I plan on staying at Fidelity for the next handful of years before transitioning. Any help would be appreciated. Well, Ben, no offense. You're not exactly a networking connoisseur. Hey, (laughs) I networked with you to get myself a new job. Did I not? Well, that's true. All right. So go ahead. What do you got? Not. (laughs) Start a blog. Start a blog. This is interesting that college students are taking our advice. By the way, this person's a senior in college and already has their whole life figured out. Yeah, it's hilarious. Kudos to them. So getting this stuff figured out beforehand. I do think this is, I've talked to a handful of college students over the years and they've talked about getting jobs at Vanguard and Fidelity in some of these bigger places to start and learn. And I think if you don't have any other opportunities right away, if you want to get into a more smaller firm or whatever, this is a great way to do it. You're going to learn every aspect of the asset management world at one of these places probably. And you probably have more opportunity 
to jump around and see what you like. Because guess what? Coming out of college, no one knows exactly what they want to do in most cases. Most people, especially in the world of finance, like I want to do exactly this role for this firm. And even if you do know, it's probably going to be hard to get your dream job right away. So trying to figure out there's so many different paths you can take in the finance world. So I think going to a bigger firm like this certainly makes sense. As far as networking goes... It's also great for your resume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Having that name brand firm on it. If you're going to work at an RA eventually, there's a very good chance that the RA that you land at uses Fidelity as one of their custodians. But I'm guessing if you want to talk about networking, there's probably some things you can do at Fidelity that could help out certain RIAs. Now, obviously, spamming people in their inbox is not going to always work, but there's probably things you can do at Fidelity that can help out some of these. So try to get on some people's books and talk to them about the services you provide at Fidelity. And that's your way to get to know some of these RIAs in the new location, correct? Correct. Here's what I've been recommending young people. The XY Planning Network has a lot of young-ish, smaller RIAs that are probably in, not probably, that are in growth mode, that are probably looking to hire junior planners. So I would poke around their website look for advisors that are part of the network in Texas and just reach out to them. I've also gotten a handful of DMs and emails in the last few weeks because we've been talking about the labor shortage lately. And people are saying, hey, listen, I have skills for these positions and I'm being looked over. A very particular set of skills? Yes. I'm being looked over because of algorithms in these job recruiting sites. They're not seeing me. And so I think a lot of ways, the best way to find a job is to get to know someone. So if you find a few firms, don't do the pick your brain thing, but call and ask people about their path to success. And I think a phone call is probably the good first step as opposed to like a coffee meeting. That's always my rule of thumb. When someone cold emails me and says, hey, let's get together for a cup of coffee, which I don't drink. So they obviously don't know me very well. But or lunch, I would prefer to do a phone call first. But here's the thing. People love talking about themselves more than anything. Let someone talk about themselves in their own path and then get to know them that way. Ben, what if somebody asked to get together for a Diet Pepsi? (laughs) How about a milkshake? Who wants to get a milkshake with me? All right. This one is kind of in line with the commodities. Longtime listener, second time asking a question. If technology allows us to produce more every day with less... This is good. This is a good one. Why should prices keep going up? So we have this technology that's helping out with commodity prices. Why is inflation there to begin with? Money supply. M1. Next question. This is a good question. It made me think. So certain prices are going down. Other prices are going up. And there's a fabulous chart that we've referenced over and over where the costs of things that you want are going down. Anything tied to technology, phones, TVs, computers. Actually, I feel like Apple keeps raising the computer prices. But things you need like education, insurance, healthcare, houses, all of those things are going up. And Ben, let me ask you, why is that the case? Well, There's a lot of macro Fed haters. And as a Fed apologist, (laughs) here we go. I'm going to talk why the Fed has like this two, two and a half percent inflation, because you need to have some inflation to have a growing economy. Now, here's why. When we had deflation back in the day, especially like the Great Depression, if prices are falling, you think as a consumer, that sounds great. Why wouldn't prices falling be a good thing? Because if prices are falling, consumers extrapolate those falling prices into the future and they decide to wait to buy something. And if you're constantly waiting to buy something, yeah, then nobody buys. We don't have growth. People's wages don't rise. So you need a little bit of inflation. A little bit of inflation is a good thing. Now, 1970s style inflation is not a good thing. That's when things get out of hand. But if we're talking one, two, three, four percent inflation, you actually want that over time because that means that society is improving and people are earning more money and people are buying more and spending more. 
And that's why debt grows as well, because inflation is growing. You want a little bit of inflation. Deflation is basically like they're both bad, inflation and deflation, but inflation is the lesser of two evils. Okay. So that was a nice little soliloquy, but answer the question. Why do we think technology is improving and yet prices keep rising? Because the world's a complicated place and technology, as we've seen throughout this pandemic, technology can only do so much to make us more efficient. There's still the physical world. Okay. So to answer the listener's question, we don't know. No, we do know. I'm saying the world requires physical movement of good stuff. You can't do that on a computer. You can't move a good with a computer. Well, how about this? You still need the ships. You need the people. You need the containers. We know why the prices of certain things are going up. Why are housing prices growing up? Two things. Three things, actually. Interest rates, demographics, and lack of housing supply. That part of it is very simple. That can be explained. Why does the price of college keep going up? I guess maybe because the loans are being subsidized by the federal government. Why does insurance keep going up? What's that about? Well, the price of college is going up because people have realized that it becomes more valuable over time because people who go to college make more money and more people want to go to college. And I've written about this too. Read the Ron Lieber book on this, but the world's a complicated place, Michael. It is. It is. Fair (laughs) enough. Next question. What's delayed mortgage financing? See, I don't know what that one is. All right. Well, maybe the listeners will. So let's just ask it. Maybe somebody will tell us. The question is, I recently found out about delayed mortgage financing. What are your thoughts on saving the purchase price of a house in a taxable account invested 100% in stocks and using that to secure delayed mortgage financing? Well, (laughs) I don't know what delayed mortgage financing is. So if somebody could enlighten us, I would appreciate that. Delayed financing offers the opportunity for you to make an attractive all-cash offer on a home while also enjoying the flexibility of a long-term mortgage-based financing. So you keep your cash liquid. I don't know. Okay. Sounds like you have enough cash. I guess I've never come across this either. Thank you for your work on podcasts. I've noticed negative sentiment from you both on gold. Ooh, which is fine. Although one of you made a quote, gold hasn't worked comment on the recent podcast. I believe you are overlooking some factors. Pretty sure they're talking about you here. Gold is normally 5 to 10% of my portfolio and has provided very nice diversification for my portfolio, along with good returns and a comparable yield to the S&P dividend through my deep out of the money calls. All right, listen, this is a sophisticated investor. I got no beef with this, none whatsoever. You're both CFA charter holders, and I would expect you to have at least a mild appreciation for gold as an asset class, considering the portfolio management concepts taught in the curriculum. I know it is boring, and talking about it won't help your downloads, your target audience, but it's not as bad. Whoa, whoa. Jeez, whoa. We just caught <laughs> some shrapnel there. <laughs> oh, man. Take it easy. Listen, I don't think we've been that negative on gold. I think. We were saying- You want me to be negative was, on gold? I'll get negative on gold right no, no, no. now. No, no, no. Hold on. In 1980, gold and the Dow were both 800. Both 800. Gold was $800. Dow was 800 points. Today, am I cherry picking? Yeah, I am. So what? It's my podcast. Today, gold is 1700 and the Dow is 35. So boom. But we've also said gold could be a good diversifier. I think it's one of these things where it's not a commodity. It's a commodity and a currency and a hedge- And I think there's all these different things that it can be. But the truth is, yeah, the majority of the returns for gold have come in very small periods. Like the 1970s, there was enormous returns because that's when they stopped fixing the price of gold. And then you had it- I don't hate gold. I hate gold bugs because they're dangerous. They're predatory. Well, by the way, the person who emailed is obviously a gold bug, but we don't hate it. And it makes sense from a diversification perspective. But I think you have to be realistic about it too, that our point was- you had the perfect setup for gold over the past 18 months. You couldn't have asked for a better positioning for gold to do well, and it didn't. What did we have? We had inflation. We had political instability. We had the rioting of the capital. Huge spending by the government. Huge spending, rioting of the capital. We had commodity prices going nuts, ex-gold. We had Bitcoin on a tear. All of the ingredients. If Peter Schiff went into a kitchen 
and had all the ingredients for a gold rally, he would have chosen everything that happened. And guess what? Gold didn't rally. So don't hate us. It's not our fault. So yeah, our point was, geez, this is kind of crazy that it didn't work. I would have thought it would have. Here's a simple one. This is a Ben Carlson question if I ever read one. I feel perfectly comfortable managing our investments early after college. I read through the Bogleheads forum and decided that a three-fund portfolio of low-cost index funds would get me where I wanted to be. I really took to heart the fact that spending more time researching investments and trying to pick individual stocks or sectors would not necessarily lead to greater returns. Instead, the focus is on our savings rate. Currently, our retirement accounts have four separate three-fund portfolios at Vanguard and Fidelity. I was wondering if there are any limitations to this three-fund portfolio strategy as we get older and our accounts grow. Honestly, I think the most important thing for the majority of investors is, do I know what I own and why I own it? And am I comfortable with my strategy? And if you are comfortable with your strategy, no matter how many funds you own, whether it's one or 20, I think that has a way bigger bearing on your performance over the long term than the actual strategy itself. Can you stick with it? And if you found a strategy you can stick with, I think that's the most important thing. Well said. And now we are going to bring on Tony Stick, who is a listener favorite. He's been on a few of these listener questions before to try to redeem himself for his 529 comments last time. And so this is Tony Stick from InvestCall answering some more questions for us. We are joined today by Tony Stick. Tony, looking good. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Just refreshed back from a nice vacation. Tan, relaxed. I'm jealous. He was at my favorite resort in Marco Island. All right. I got to get to this question because someone asked this and it immediately made me think of you. So I was wondering if you already had an episode on this and could direct me to the right direction if you had a minute to answer this question. I've decided to not open a 529 plan for my children because I specifically don't like the fact that there is no one-time penalty-free rollover if the child decides not to pursue higher education or I do not use all the funds. Where would you recommend I stick this money for them that comes sent from friends and family? I don't want to just stick it in a savings account where it loses value over time. Now, last time you were on the show, I guess a month ago maybe, we talked about 529 plans. I had no idea so many people had such a strong opinion on 529 plans. You laid out the fact, like this listener, that you decided not to fund 529 plans for your children, and you had your reasons, and (laughs) a lot of people did not care for that take, which was your personal decision. Personally, I funded one for all my kids basically when they were born, but you said, this is my decision. So this was an interesting one to me because it was your personal decision. You just decided that you're either going to fund it another way or they're not going to go to school or whatever. I just couldn't believe how many people had very strong takes on 529 plans. So you needed to defend yourself and then tell this person where they can put their money if they're not going to put it in a 529 plan. <laughs> so, wow. Like <laughs> Michael, wouldn't you say, I mean, how many did we get? All right, hold Dozens. on, Tony, before you answer. So please, <laughs> there was one person who was like, almost attacking us for not taking a strong enough stand. And it's like, dude, go check the tape. I'm pretty sure that we were surprised and pushed back a little, but it was worse. He emailed me the next day and said, hey, I just saw that you're letting Tony do college planning for you. You're reprehensible. You guys should lose your licenses or whatever. (laughs) I don't know if he said that, but I'm like, dude, it's Tony Isola. Tony is a CFP. We do recommend 529s. (laughs) Chill out. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, people were up in arms. So Tony, with that said, what do you say to this person who decided not to open a 529? What should they do? Okay. Well, just give me one second though. First and foremost. The mic is yours. I want to be very crystal clear on something. (laughs) Like Ben said, these are all personal decisions. Financial advice, personal financial management is personal, right? And people have different takes. I was glad when I saw this question because this individual validated my position. Now, I was approached on Twitter 
I was approached in other ways for my takes on your podcast. And I'll be crystal clear on two things. One, this is not the take of Navaplan. Navaplan models 529s. It'll be very crystal clear, 529s. Secondly, I could have been a little more crystal clear in my approach. I think some people got hung up on the philosophical nature of what I believe might be occurring in the higher education space over the next 10, 20 years. That's philosophical. That's my opinion. But just like this gentleman's question or this woman's question, the short question is, is I don't like the restrictive nature of a 529 and I think I can do better elsewhere. And again, we could talk about this for hours because is tax avoidance always the key to advice? Is that always the goal and goal with your money? Like there's a lot of questions you could answer about this, but I'm glad this guy asked or this gal asked because it does validate my position because he or she felt the same way about the 529s. Didn't like the restrictions, didn't like the fact that there was a penalty, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think of the question, they don't mention some options, but here- Is it just a brokerage account, basically? Is that the simple answer? Yes, that really is a simple answer. That is a simple answer because it has the most flexibility, has the most opportunity for you to manage those accounts. You could invest in ETFs, you can invest in single securities. You could also invest in, dare I say, the target date fund and establishing that kind of time horizon and that goal of what you want to achieve and then kind of reverse engineering. So like, there's ways to do that but still having the flexibility of using it elsewhere. I would say it's a broken. Tony, account. it sounds like you're trading the tax benefits for the flexibility to not pay a 10% penalty if you don't use the money for higher education. Yeah, because you're still going to get pinged either way. But like, this is where it gets, I mean, I get it. It's actually kind of fun because it was a hot take and we did create a great deal of activity and interest. But I just, I like that flexibility. 529s are not for everyone, okay? They're a vehicle for some individuals, many individuals, but- Hi, everyone. We like the flexibility of the brokerage accounts, and that's how it works for us. And it's worked for us, and it could work for this person as well. Which, by the way, in my 529 plan for my kids, they're all invested in a target date fund. It's the same thing. It's just it's the delivery platform. Okay, here's a good one. This is a question about how much you should spend on a home. So I'm curious, what percentage of your income should one spend on their home? Is there a net worth or income multiplier that is a good rule of thumb? For context, this is a 26-year-old person in Florida earning 150 k a year. This qualifies me for various home in my area. However, I like to save and invest a very large percentage of my income, so I don't want to take on a payment so large that it detracts from my ability to save and invest. They own one rental property, have 200K in equity investments, not yet married and no kids. So they're basically asking, should I splurge a bit and buy myself an extra home or buy a smaller home since I am still so young and keep saving a larger percentage of my income? These are the questions I really love. It actually goes back to the first question. This boils down to personal advice and the concept of what your comfort level is. And by the way, congrats to this individual, very successful. They have a rental property. They have a couple hundred thousand dollars in retirement accounts, sub 30 years old. But I do get really kind of, I get a bit sick to my stomach about this question because I was in the mortgage space back in 07 and 08. And I was actually involved with brokers and how they sold loans and the concept of debt to income ratio and how what DTI you should have to be able to buy a home or afford a home. And most lenders kind of say your DTI can be 43% or less. So your debt to income ratio, but they look at gross income. So this individual, they might look at your gross income of $150,000 a year and then reverse engineer your ability to handle debt up to about 43% of your gross income. And I just, I don't like that. You should look at your net income, okay? I would like to just go through a quick rule of thumb. And this is pretty basic stuff. I like this concept of, have you guys heard of the 50, 30, 20 rule with your budget? Yeah. Is that from Rich Dad, Poor Dad? No, no I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to know. 
yes, man, I have heard of that one before. Poor yeah. guy. I mean, he's <laughs> poor guy now. Poor readers. Rich dad. Poor tweeter. Oh my goodness, man! Just I, that's why I tweet about stupid stuff like pumpkin spice lattes. But anyways, the fifty thirty twenty is really boils down to your needs being fifty percent of your net income on a monthly basis. Your wants is about 30% and your savings is about 20%, again, of your net. Within that 50% of your needs, that would be your mortgage, food, vehicles, utilities, et cetera. NFTs. NFTs, your needs. <laughs> and so then from that, you need to look at what percentage of that should be your mortgage. I think I'm talking too long here, but the short story is many people say between 25 and 30% of your income should be devoted to your mortgage. Mine is actually sub 20%, believe it or not. Not bad. But I just, I don't want to be house rich. I think, especially when you're a young person like this, you don't want to buy a big house just because you can, especially if you're not married and have kids yet and you don't know if this is going to be your forever home. My line of thinking is don't spend up on a house, especially if it's not your forever home. And you think it's obviously you never really know, but especially if this is just something you're just trying for the first time, you don't have to buy something just because the bank says you can. You can yes. stick within your own budget, obviously. Tony, can I put words in your mouth? Please. You think that paying off your mortgage is a dumb idea and you like interest-only mortgages? <laughs> <laughs> I like seven, seven-year arms. You know? I was there in 2007. And like, I, it's terrifying though, because the broker's would say, hey, man, you can afford this million and a half dollar home on your stated income with a credit score of 620. Like I watched it happen. Remember, brokers are incentivized by the largest note they can sell you. So like you need to kind of scale that back and say to yourself, okay, 35% of my income, 25%, mine is sub 20% because I do not want to be house rich. I want to have flexibility. And if, if my emergency savings needs to last longer than six months, I know that I have a very reasonable mortgage that I can handle. And I agree with you. It's not their forever home. It's a starter home. Buy low, sell high. Buy the cheapest house in the subdivision because that's going to be your best investment ever in terms of that subdivision or that area. And then go from there. All right. I love that 50-30-20. That's good practical advice. All right. Last question, Tony. What is your take on the proper positioning of an advisor and the advisor-client relationship. All of the advisors I've worked with have a need to know all the answers and prove how smart they are to their clients. This shows up as industry jargon, useless market commentary, and false precision in the financial planning and investment management process. You've both studied the markets far more than any advisor I've worked with. And one of the things that I love about your show is how willing you are to not say- to Not to brag. Yeah. How willing you are to say, <laughs> I don't know, or it doesn't matter. And I share that humility. Is confidence perhaps arrogance a prerequisite to be a client-facing advisor? Wow. I got to be very careful because I have 140,000 advisors that I call customers of Navaplan. <laughs> so I think there is a shift in the financial advice space. And I think the old guard of advisors tried to be the most intellectual and the most well-researched on all of these topics. I believe that was the case because A, they had to validate their fees and B, they felt that if they weren't the smartest in the room, they, you might go elsewhere as a client. So I think there was this almost like this personality trait that they felt they needed to embrace. Now, the industry jargon thing, the all the research and all, there's going to be a bit of that. But the advisor of the future and the advisor that I work with and that I encourage you to work with looks at advice in a different way. And I think, Ben, you embrace this. It's a holistic way of living your life now and in the future. What about me? I embrace this. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> Your audience can't see my face, but okay, you too. Okay, you're along for the ride, Michael. But the concept is like embracing life now, like living life to the fullest now. And so that's the advice you want to look for. The one that truly wants to understand who you are, what makes you tick, what's your wishes, wants, and desires. Like for instance, 
Ben, we just talked about that resort, Marco Island. If your advisor knows that that's something you want to do each year, he or she should be thinking about that, not saying that's too much money. They should be saying, how can we make that work and becoming much more approachable. So it's living that holistic kind of financial life where an eye towards the future, but what makes you tick today? I think that advisor is the advisor of the future, and you need to look for those approachable advisors. So the ones that position themselves as living your life to the fullest or providing you advice for now and in the future, you're not going to get so much industry jargon. You're going to get more about them understanding your goals, your wishes, your desires. You'll feel less of that friction relationship. Some advisors can be like that, but I think that tide is definitely turning. I also think it's harder to bullshit younger people. Like it was a demographics thing. Back when our parents were using brokers in the early 90s, our parents didn't know anything about the market because information was limited. If they wanted to look up a stock quote, they had to call their broker. There wasn't Reddit message boards. So I think it was easy to make stuff up, use jargon and intimidate people and give the illusion that you knew something that they couldn't possibly understand. And the world is flat now. Like anybody could Google you, could Google what you just said and fact check you in two seconds. So I think that that tactic has stopped working a long time ago. And it's a good thing for consumers of financial advice. This question asks like, is confidence and arrogance? I think there's a difference between confidence. Confidence is like being confident in your process and your planning. Arrogance and your assertions. And your you assertions. Can, right. Well, arrogance is thinking that you can predict the outcomes. And I think that's the difference now is that advisors know they don't have to predict the outcomes because no one can. The whole point is the planning is a process. And Tony, all the advisors you work with, I'm sure think this way too. It's just kind of a different world. And it's not like a trust me, I got this anymore. It's uh, like, we're going to work with you. We want you to trust us that we're bringing you the best answers we can. I have a ton of anecdotes on this, but there's, have you heard of the investor spectrum? There's three points of the spectrum. There's the do-it-yourself investor on the one end of the spectrum. There is the white glove service or the traditional investor on the other end. They're called the delegator investors. And then there's the people in the middle, which are called the validators. And what happened was traditional advice was focused on the delegators. They would tell the advisor what to do, but the advisor better be the smartest person in the room. Like you said, Michael, before the internet, before access to information, it was very much like we're going to these intelligent experts in their craft. And then you have the do-it-yourselfers on the other end of the spectrum that want to do everything themselves. In the middle is what we call validators. These are investors and advisors that validate each other's decisions. They're working together. It's collaborative. And so you're going to see a lot more of that. They want to validate a decision. So when Michael goes to them and says, I want to buy these NFTs, you say it's a great retirement plan. You seek validation from the advisor. And then when they provide you the recommendation to open up a 529, they're seeking your validation to do that as well. So you want to find that group in the middle because that's what most investors want. They want validations because they've heard something or they've read something and the advisor wants to provide validation to that or to their own advice. Make sense? Yeah. I think the way that we always frame it is most people just want to know they're going to be okay. That's the validation they want. Like, am I going to be okay if I spend money on this? Is it not going to ruin me down the line? And I think that's the biggest thing. So, okay, Tony, I don't think we had as as many hot takes as last time. We're not going to get as much hate mail, but this was helpful. Well, we'll see tomorrow, I guess, on Twitter. Hopefully, I've indicated, appreciate you coming indicated on. myself a bit on the 520. By the way, I had a lot of supporters on that. I just want to be very clear. <laughs> I had a lot of people reach out to me and say, thank you, Tony. Okay? Right. You guys are the best. There's dozens yes, of us. Dozens, dozens of us. Make sure it didn't happen. <laughs> yes. All right, Tony, well, this is great. Thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks, guys, for having me. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, InvestCloud. Thank you, listeners, for all the amazing questions. Email us at animalspiritspod at gmail.com and we will see you next time.